Good to see you here at the EU Parliament meeting. Glad you could join us here. Well, um, quick survey before we get underway. Great to see you. Welcome. Um, quick survey. Hand up if you can speak a total of one language. Monocultural. Mono, sorry, monolingual. You might be multi. Yeah. Great. Okay, so now let's get to the interesting people. Hand up if you can speak two languages, at least two languages. Yeah? Be bold, be, be proud, that's fantastic. Two, what about three, trilingual? Let's, let's, let's be impressed. Come on, put your hand up if you're trilingual. We, we, want to, we want to bathe in the awesomeness of your linguistic capabilities. What languages, can you say in a nice loud voice, what are the languages you can speak if you're trilingual? Yeah, there was one. What, what were your languages? Korean, Mandarin, and English. Very impressive. That's very impressive. Anyone else trilingual? Give me a wave if you're trilingual. I had like four yesterday. In, in, yesterday. No, only one. What other languages do we have in the room besides Mandarin, Korean, and English? Japanese. Fantastic. Cantonese. Cantonese, good. German and Spanish. German, a little bit of Spanish. Italian. Yeah. Sorry? Someone said something? Italian. Italian, nice. Indonesian, great. Anything else? Fijian. Fijian, fantastic. Any other languages we've got? Tamil. Tamil, good. Keep going, fly them out. What else? Greek. Sorry? Ancient Greek. <laughs> Ancient Greek. Let's go with living languages. So, Latin, no, doesn't count. Cleon, it's not real. You know that there's more than 7,000 living languages around the world? 7,000. We've probably got between us, even from those who didn't want to share just then, what, I'm thinking we're going to max out at about 20. But 7,000. wonder if you can pick what language... That's not going to work for me today. Can you pick what language this is? What might they be saying? his word in the Christian Bible, wants us to understand something about human languages, about that diversity of human languages. But most of the time, I don't think we're tuned in to what he's trying to tell us through that reality. We just sort of go, oh, languages, that's cool if you like languages, or languages, that's scary if you don't like languages, 
or we go, oh, languages that when someone whispers sweet nothings in your ear in a romantic language, you sort of think, oh, that's wonderful, or whatever your reaction is, it's probably not actually the one that the one true living God has given us with which to perceive human languages. And that's what we're going to explore about today. We're doing this because we're working through the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, and this comes up in one particular section. I uh, introduced us last week to the fact that the author of the book of Genesis has structured his account, not by chapters and verses, but by a, a key phrase, which I've got there on the screen. These are the generations of... Dot, 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 or this is the account of... Dot, dot, dot. And it's used a number of times throughout the book. And it's used here, if you've got your Bible open there, it's used in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. The introduction of a new section. And what you notice in Genesis chapter 10, verse 1 is uh, you get the account of the generations of three people, three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth, who came out of the ark with Noah. What do you notice in this genealogy that's then given, and genealogies strike us as incredibly boring when we read them, but the genealogies in Genesis, each one has a theme. So if you've read the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 5, there's a genealogy and its theme is the rule, the reign of death. Because everyone who's listed in genealogy, except one, but I'll leave you to work that one out, everyone is so-and-so lived for X number of years, and then they died. And so-and-so lived for X number of years, and they died. The other genealogies don't go through, oh, and they died, and they died. And it's clearly the theme of that genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. What's the theme of this genealogy in Genesis chapter 10, if you've got it open in front of you. Well, again, the key is in the repeated phrases. And there is a repeated phrase. You can see there, I've got it on the screen, verses 5, 10 and 13, there's a theme, a repeated phrase of, this was the division of the people according to their clans and languages in their territories and nations. Now those four words are interesting, they sort of relate to different ways humans group together. Clans, that's your biological family, people you are related to by blood, your family. Languages, okay, that groups people together, they speak a common language. Their territories, that's geography. And their nations, that's politics, the political gatherings. So this was how people were divided up. And if you read through the genealogy, it shows how God's people Sorry, the human race coming out of the ark spread across the face of the earth in these divisions. Their clans, their languages, their territories and their nations. And you might think at that point, if you've been following the story, well that's great. I mean God said right at the beginning, fill the earth and subdue it. And here they are, coming out of the ark, God gave that command again, fill the earth and subdue it. And now they're spreading out across it. Well, maybe humanity has got their act together. I mean, they've been rejecting God's word and God's way and rejecting him as their God all the way through this story. But maybe they've got their act together and they're actually fulfilling his command to them. No. That would be the wrong conclusion to make. Chapter 11, the next chapter, the second part of this section, gives you the explanation of why they ended up scattering. And unfortunately, it's not, a, it's not as because human beings decided to listen to God's word and way. It's actually the opposite of that. 
So, we just had read for us Genesis chapter 11. I'm not going to read it out again, but hopefully you've got it in front of you. Call it up on your phone, or maybe look on with the person next to you. Some things to note about this particular story. I mean, I can summarise it pretty quickly. Everyone at the beginning of the account in chapter 11 speaks the same language, and they're all in one place. They decide to build a city with a big tower. The Lord God comes down and says, I don't want you to build this sort of tower together. And so, the Lord God confuses their language so they're unable to work together. That's the result. Because if you know, I say to Sam in one language, hey, pass me that chisel so we can build the next part of our tower, and suddenly he can't understand me, then we're just not going to bother to build the tower. It's just too hard. And so, this is a very effective way from the one true living God stopping them building this tower. And so, consequently, Sam goes and finds the other people who can speak the language that he now speaks, and I go and find the people that I can speak the language that I now speak, and they all separate out and go their different ways. So, three things then to note about this particular account. First is this. This tower that they build is built in rebellion. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 4. Then they said to each other, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we might make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Just three things in that little verse. They want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Who lives in the heavens? Well, in the, in the worldview of Genesis, you've got the heavens, where God lives, and the earth, where human beings and other creatures live, and they want to build a tower to the heavens. It's like sort of going to where God's house and planting a humanity flag there and saying, this is going to be us. We're not going to be restricted to our realm. We're taking your land. We're taking your space. It's an act of rebellion to build to the heavens. Second thing to note there, they want to make a name for themselves. Well, who gave humanity their name? Well, it was the one true living God. They're actually trying to do something that God normally does. And then the third thing to note there, they don't want to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. This is a, a deliberate attempt to not be scattered. Let's keep ourselves together. So they build this tower as an act of rebellion against the one true living God. It's just the sin of Adam and Eve continuing. Rejecting God's word, rejecting his way, rejecting him as God, refusing to worship him. It's the same as humanity before the flood, where every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil all the time. It's the sin that just keeps on coming. Humanity is captured by sin, and now it results in the building of this tower. Well, what's the Lord's response? Second thing to note. The Lord gives what I call a handbrake judgment. That is, the Lord judges their rebellion. Have a look at verses 6 and 7. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So it's clearly a, the different languages that God introduces at this point is a judgment on their rebellion. But notice it's a judgment that prevents further sin. It's to stop them, do, stop them in this act of rebellion. It's like trying to drive with a handbrake on. If you remember when you learnt to drive, or you haven't had that joy yet, 
this will happen. I think it probably happens to everybody who learns to drive. That day when you press the accelerator and the handbrake is still on, and you think, oh, something's not working. I must not be pressing the accelerator hard enough. And so you press it even harder. And the person in the car, if there's someone in the car, is saying, what are you doing? As you seek to try to burn the engine into smithereens, right, by accelerating with the handbrake. You can drive with the handbrake on. Oh, well, I've tried and done it. But oh, you can drive with the handbrake on, but it certainly impedes your progress. God's, the introduction of different languages is God putting the handbrake on human wickedness. If we could all speak around the world the same language, God's verdict is not that that would just be wonderful and awesome. God's verdict is you'd probably do more evil as humanity. You'd probably do more wickedness as humanity. It slows down the amount of sin that takes place. Now, I don't know whether you agree with that or not. That's sort of the perspective that we're given here in the Bible. It's a handbrake judgment. So this, um, this maybe should affect how we think about languages. Talked last week about when you see a rainbow, what do you think? And that taking our lead from... God's word in the book of Genesis, when you see a rainbow, we're to remember God's present patience with us. That cost him the life of his dear son, Jesus. What do you think when you hear a different language? When you, I don't know if you've travelled overseas to places where you can't speak the language, where you encounter different languages, or frankly just different parts of Sydney. You hear different languages. What do you think? You might not think anything at all. But given what we've just even read now, what should you think? You should be reminded, actually, I can't understand them and they can't understand me because that's God's restraint on our propensity to evil, our propensity to sin. God's put that barrier there because unfettered, who knows what we might do as humanity. Does that mean languages are bad? No. You've got to step back and think more broadly at this point. Are languages in themselves bad? No, because speech is a God-like and God-given capacity. God is the one who speaks. He spoke creation into being. He said, let there be light, and there was light. So speech is a capacity that God has, and he equips us as his image bearers, who are called to be his representative presence in the world, he equips us with the capacity to speak like him. And yet, we use that capacity to collude in evil schemes. But mercifully, instead of him just taking away the capacity for speech, what he does is he creates different languages as a handbrake. Each language enables us to continue to serve as his image bearers, but which is also a reminder to us of our hard, rebellious inclination without the transforming grace that's found in the Lord Jesus. So, if rainbows are a reminder of God's patience with us, then hearing languages I don't understand is a reminder that God had to put a restraint on us. The third thing, just to notice from this account, is that it's the Lord's purposes that win out in the end. Have a look at verses 8 and 9. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel, 
because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Every time things are repeated, you know you should take notice, right? In verse 8 and verse 9, we're, we're told the Lord scattered them. How did the story start? They didn't want to be scattered. So the Lord in the end wins out. He scatters them across the face of the earth in accordance with his plan and purpose. Interestingly, they wanted to make a name for themselves. That's why they built the tower. The only thing that ends up being named in this account is the city. And it's called Babel, which means confusion. So even the name that's given ends up recognising who really was the powerful one in the story. Who really actually saw their purposes win out. The Lord did. So this is a reminder that human sin and rebellion never stops God achieving his ultimate good purposes for his creation. Humans here were united in building this tower as an act of rebellion, but the, but the Lord's purposes still won out. Adam and Eve's sin in the garden didn't stop God's good purposes. Sinful humanity before the flood didn't stop God's good purposes as he preserved Noah and his family. And here the sinful, rebellious humanity of Babel will still not stop God's purposes. God's good purposes to see humanity spread out across the face of the earth won't be thwarted. Even though the vehicle here was God's judgment. And just as I stop and reflect on that a little bit, you think, we see the one true living God operating like this time and time again through the Bible. That human wickedness, human rebellion against him won't stop his purposes and in fact God takes human wickedness or suffering and he wraps it up in his grace and he uses it to achieve his good purposes. That doesn't make evil good and it doesn't make suffering good. I'm saying he uses evil and good. He wraps them up in his grace and uses those bad things to produce some good outcomes. You see it here at the Tower of Babel. You see it right throughout the Bible. And I guess the place you see it climactically is in the very worst of human sin. When we as humanity decided to execute God's Son. God sends His Son as the Messiah, the King of all, and we decide to kill Him. And God even takes that, the, the depth of human sin, or the height of human arrogance and rebellion, and uses that in his good purposes to bring salvation, forgiveness, to the very people who clamoured for Jesus' death. So you see here in Acts chapter 2 in the first Christian sermon, talking of Jesus, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. God takes our wickedness. He takes even our suffering, and he uses it to achieve his good purposes. So what then are we to do about human languages to return to that theme? Is this the end of God's purposes for the different sort of languages around the world? Is it just an explanation of 
why there are different languages. No, far from it actually. The rest of the Bible is really a story of how God wants to bring blessing to all of them, these different language groups, these different cultures and nations. And the story kicks off, as we're going to see next week, in the person of Abram and God's promises to Abram to bless all the nations of the world through him. So we'll look at that next week. But today, I guess I want to fast forward through to see where this God's action in salvation history, how it comes to a climax for the different nations and cultures that arise here from the Tower of Babel. What does Jesus' death and resurrection mean for nations and languages? Well, first thing I want to say is that God draws up all the different languages that are introduced at Babel into his eternal, glorious and good purposes. If we fast forward to the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, and see some there on the screen, we have a vision that the living Lord Jesus gave to John the Apostle of the future. And what is part of this picture? Well, here it is. John says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, actually, literally, it's cried out in a loud sound, with a loud sound, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Why do I point out that it's sound rather than voice? If you read voice, you might think, oh, they're all speaking the same language. No, it's just they cry out in a loud sound. They all come with their different languages and they all say the same thing in their own language. It's a common message, a message of praise to God and to the Lord Jesus for salvation, but it's in their own languages. God has taken what was his judgment, the introduction of languages, and captures it in his grace up into his eternal purposes, such that at the final moment you see everyone praising Jesus in their languages. In fact, there's a great contrast, I think, between the people gathered at Babel and the people gathered around the throne in Revelation. At Babel, the nations come together in arrogance and rebellion, Around a tower, here in Revelation, they come together around Jesus, the Lamb, and the heavenly throne. They come together in praise and worship. At Babel, the nations are scattered. Here in Revelation, the nations flow back together. Here in, at, sorry, at Babel, the people attempt to make a name for themselves, but here in Revelation, they come together as those proclaiming Jesus' name, having washed their robes white in the blood of his cross. And in Babel, they have different languages imposed upon them. But here they come together as people with different languages and but only one message. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. So this is the great plan of God. To draw people together from every nation and language and culture and place who have been cleansed from their sins through Jesus' death for them and who will live to serve and praise Him for all eternity. That's God's plan for the whole world, as I've got there on the screen. That is God's agenda. Wherever you think history is going, wherever you think your life is going, this is what the one true living God is doing. He's bringing all of our lives, all of history to that moment. 
That's his agenda. What's yours? Are you in line with that agenda? Like, do you have that clearly in mind? That all of life's decisions, the little decisions and the big decisions, should be heading towards that mark. Those decisions are made in light of that mark. That's where, if you want an analogy, that's where the great river tide of human history is going. Inexorably. You can't... You, now, you can try to swim against it. Not going to do much. Or you might try to coast along and go, yeah, I'm heading that way, but I'm trying to do a bit of that. A bit of that. Like, are, you, are you aligned? This is the great, glorious, final moment. How does that shape all of your decisions? That sounds like a great topic for a conference. <laughs> and that's why we're going to do an annual conference this year. How does the end shape how I live now? Living life to the full when time is short. That's what we're going to be talking about at annual conference. So I hope you can come along as we dig into that together. So... One, one, one sort of final thing is become, uh, I want to add to this. We've talked about the Tower of Babel where language is introduced. Okay, so now when I encounter languages, I, I remember, okay, yeah, that's, that's a reminder of God's handbrake judgment on our evil hearts, right? Different languages. But we've seen how God captures that up into his purposes and all of those languages will be around the throne at the end. That's fantastic. How are we going between those two? What happens in the middle? Well... Here's, here's the answer, I think. How does God intend to bring about that final reality? Two things. Jesus' command and Jesus' empowerment. To fill in the gap in the middle, you've got Jesus' command. The resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples in Matthew 28. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Baptising them and teaching them everything that I've taught you. That's, that's Jesus' plan. That's his command. Let's go to all of those nations. But God never gives you a command that he doesn't equip you to do, to fulfill. He never sets something for you without empowering you to do it. So what's God's empowerment for that? The answer is the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. So Jesus' empowerment, you see in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus' disciples at the day of Pentecost, and we read there, Jews from every nation were declaring, we hear Jesus' disciples declaring the ones of God in our own tongues. God does a miracle, and by filling Jesus' disciples with the Spirit, they are miraculously able to then proclaim the good news of Jesus in other languages. I mean, it would make passing Japanese in university very easy if God would just do that whenever you asked. But you know, if you go to language school and learn Japanese or learn whatever language, and you do the hard yards of that, the only reason you are able to do that is because God gives you the capacity. That's true for anything in your life. God is the one who gives you that capacity. And so you, you might have the spiritual gift of being able to speak Japanese. Maybe it came on you at a moment and suddenly you're able to speak Japanese like at Pentecost. Or maybe it came through three years slaving away in a language school. It's still a spirit 
spiritual gift. It's still a gift of God's spirit that you can use for his kingdom. So, how are we going with this task? Well, I thought I'd throw at you some information. Uh, Wycliffe Global Alliance put all of their energy into Bible translation around the world. And so I just thought I'd give you a bit of a snapshot of how are we going with 7,388 known living languages around the world? How are we going at getting the good news of Jesus out to all of those languages? Now you can see there the infographic uh, to read from the left. The purple Bible there says there's 724 complete translations of the Bible in different languages. 724 different languages. There's the New Testament has been translated in full into an additional 1,617 languages. There's another 1,248 languages that have bits of the Bible. They don't have a full New Testament, they have bits. They might have a gospel, maybe they've got some Psalms, they've just they've got portions. There's then 1,680 languages where they have no Bible translated at all, nothing, and where these experts from Wycliffe say we really actually need to get the Bible into those languages. There's another 964 where translation has already begun, and there's another 1,155 where they estimate we probably don't have to translate the Bible into these languages because either most of those people already speak another language that they have access to the Bible in, that they're very comfortable in, or that language sadly is dying out. And so the 20 years work that it takes to translate the Bible into a particular language, if, if it's not a, not a project now that's worthwhile doing because the next generation don't speak. So there's 1,680 languages where we're yet to begin translating any part of the Bible. Now you might say, okay, that sounds like a lot of languages. How many people is that? Okay, well the answer is that 128 uh, covers, sorry, that one, what was it? 1,600 languages covers 128 million people. Now, I, I looked at this for a while, I must admit, I looked at this infographic and went, look, we've already got the Bible, you know, and access to 5.9 billion people, we're doing pretty great. Yeah, as Christians over 2,000 years, we're doing alright, we've, we've achieved a fair bit. And then I stopped to think about how many people is 128 million. These people have no Bible in their heart language. None. Nothing. Not a portion, not a chapter. 128 million. I thought, well, Australia's got what? 20, 25 million, 27 million or something like that? So it's about five Australians. So you have to get all the people in Australia go, none of them have any Bible in a language, in their heart language, in their primary language. None. And then you take another whole Australian, gather all those people and say, and neither do they. And neither do they. Nor they. It's a lot of people who have no access. What about in our own neck of the woods? If you just look in the Pacific, you can see there 339 languages in the Pacific region alone with no Bible portion, where they estimate we do need to have actually do the work. 339 languages. 
1,680 languages across the world. Big job. Let me give you some uh, concrete examples. In China, according to joshuaproject.net, 337 of the 550 people groups in China do not have Bible portions available in their primary language. That's 195 million people. And the largest group, people group in the world without any Bible portions in their primary language is the Jin Chinese of China, 47 million people. Now, I just mentioned in passing before, uh, talking to different Bible translators, it takes about 20 years to do a Bible translation. Like to actually do the work, to learn the language, to work out an alphabet, to construct a grammar, to do the translation, get it all checked. 20 years. Now that's, that, I mean, that's a, as someone said to me, one Bible translator said, it's, it's a career. <laughs> like, it's, it's what you're going to do. 20 years work. But can you imagine, like, producing God's word for that people group, such that 47 million, sorry, yeah, 47 million and their descendants would have access to God's Word. Does that suddenly start to feel like maybe a worthwhile investment of your life? I'll give you another different example. Uh, if you've been at some of EU's annual conferences, you might have met this couple, Ross and Linda Webb. They're from New South Wales. Uh, been, they were Bible translators in Papua New Guinea for 17 years to produce this particular Bible translation. So. They landed in this village. There were seven villages in the highlands of New Guinea. Landed in this particular village, seven villages that speak this Irimu language. Total number of speakers, 1,500 people. 1,500 people speak this particular language, Irimu, and it was the language that you were listening to at the beginning of our time together today, Irimu. And so they landed there. Now, no language school to go to, you just land. And you have to just learn the language. So it's full immersion. They just learnt the language, learnt to speak the language. Then it was only an oral language. There's nothing written down. So they then created an alphabet, created a grammar. They, and over 17 years, they translated the Bible. And so, here's what we were listening to before. What were you listening to? You were listening to Revelation chapter 7, the nations gathered around the throne in the Yoruba language. You can follow along. Who is Tom Bataki? He's got capital letters, and I now want to go and read Revelation 7 going, who is Tom Bataki? Anyway, he gets a couple of mentions. Um, after, and, uh, after Ross and Lindell spent 17 years in Papua New Guinea, they then went to Vanuatu to head up Bible translation in Vanuatu. Vanuatu is ridiculously close to Sydney. It's closer to Sydney than Perth, but Vanuatu is a, is a wonderful country. It's got 65 inhabited islands and between them over a hundred living languages. It, I mean, it's a mind-blowing. 
And so there are currently 60 languages in Vanuatu alone requiring Bible translation. And here's a little video of some Australians who've gone to Vanuatu to do just that. I come from here hearing the word of God. And when we hear the word of God, this our faith needs to be. So I don't want you to leave this thing, oh, it's all about Bible translation. What I want to say is, the root, when, we, when we encounter languages, that's God's handbrake judgment. It's a reminder of human sin. We know the destination, all languages gathered around the throne, praising Jesus for his salvation. And we know in the middle is Jesus' command to go to all nations and his empowerment with the Spirit to learn those languages that we might teach people about Jesus. It's really about having a heart for those who are less reached and less resourced with God's Word. That might mean that you decide to learn Mandarin. Not because you've got Chinese relatives, but because there are so many Mandarin speakers coming to Australia who don't know the Lord Jesus. It might be you learning some other language so that you can reach out. It doesn't mean necessarily becoming a Bible translator, but... Vanuatu looks like a nice place to live. It could be alright. You don't have to be good on So, conclusion. Here we are. Just different languages. God's handbrake judgment. Restraint on our capacity to sin. Caught up into God's good eternal purposes in Jesus Christ. And bringing the good news of Jesus' gospel to all people in every language. Love those who are less reached and less resourced. I look forward to being with you next week as we finish our series on Genesis this year. But we're now going to leave in prayer. Thanks for listening to today's talk. The Evangelical Union, or EU, 
is a student club on campus at Sydney University that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. To join us or to find out more, please visit sydneyuneeu.org.